Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us now in this time of the service to pay careful attention to your words, your living word. And we ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to show us new things that we've never seen, to remind us of things that we've once heard but have grown dim, to humble us, to encourage us. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. I pray for help for those listening, that they would be captivated by what you have said. I pray for help in preaching, for clarity, Lord, for passion. Father, unfold your words to us and give us great light and heat by them that we may live for you in this world. We long for heaven. We long to see you face to face. But until we see you face to face, Lord, it is it is enough for us to simply hear you speak. And we ask that you would do that now. In Christ's name, amen. Here's an interesting question. Do you think the person nearest to you in the room right now, and take your pick if you've got somebody on either side of you, do you think the person nearest to you in the room right now is a good candidate for verbal insult? When would you consider it a privilege to have verbal insult? I can think of two things right off the bat. One, if you're going to a sporting event and you're decked out in your team's colors and gear and it's an away game and you're there, you suddenly find out the ticket that you got, you're sitting in a seat surrounded in a sea of the home team and you're on the away team and your team starts to do well and maybe they even win and it gets heaped upon you, verbal insult. Or even if you're, maybe if you're in something a little bit more serious, a courtroom, a court case, and the jury rules in your favor, and you have a sigh of relief, but then that opposing side, that losing side, stare back at you, and maybe even at their last moment to have some time with you, even though it's a public setting, they, they throw some fiery words at you and insult you. When would you consider it a privilege to be insulted? I know that from a young age, we're given defense mechanisms. You know how to finish this phrase. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Those words are from a common childhood chant spoken often through generations. It's, It's over 150 years old. In fact, in March of 1862, we have the oldest known printed origin of that phrase in the Christian recorder which is a periodical, the sticks and stones phrase. So we know that every generation has had some kind of defense against harsh words, and we know that it's true that if you live long enough, someone will say something mean to you. But I've got better news for you. If you are a Christian, you are a target, a magnet for slander. This is part of that costly side of being a follower of Christ. If you're a Christian, chances are high that because you love Christ, others will slander you, they will put lies at your face, lies behind your back, and speak evil of you and misrepresent you and and even cuss at you and threaten you because you're a Christian. 
Would that cause you to rejoice if that happened to you? If you remember the words of Christ, it really could cause you to rejoice. Jesus instructs us in our passage today by saying, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That's counterintuitive. Unless I had those specific words of Jesus, I know and I know about you, you would never rejoice and never be glad that people are verbally assaulting you. But this is the power of Jesus' word. It can completely re-script and change the lens by which we view everything that happens to us. Jesus was doing a little bit of re-scripting in the, the ears and minds and hearts of his hearers. On a day 2,000 years ago, as he sat on a hillside and he began his most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, and he started that sermon saying what I just quoted about being blessed, even if others revile you. But he said more than just reviling. He talked about being blessed in many different angles and facets. I want you to see this, so go ahead and turn with me in the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. This is on page 809 in the Bibles under the seats, if you don't have a Bible. But you'll be helped by having a copy of the Scriptures with you today. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. Matthew 5 says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This Sermon on the Mount is a transformational kingdom manifesto that's meant to make wise God's people because the end of the ages has dawned in Christ. Everything in the Scriptures points to Him. He's defining God's people anew. He's starting off a sermon by giving us this this word for what blessedness is, what we just read. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would understand Jesus' way of seeing what a blessed life is. Not what the culture says or what even maybe your parents or grandparents have said to you, and not even what you've told yourself what a blessed life is. My prayer is that Jesus' words will be what re-scripts your template for what blessedness is. 
And so today, we're going to be looking at the last five of those nine blessed statements. Last week, we looked at the first four. We talked about the difference between blessings, good things that could happen to you, but we talked about the just and the unjust have good things happen to them. We talked about the difference between blessings and blessedness, and we talked about four different identifiers, four different ways of character and being in this world that you can know with certainty you are blessed. And the good news today is Jesus doesn't just give us four. He gives us double that amount. And then one extra. Five. We have five fresh ways this morning to look again at what makes for a blessed person. So I I would ask you to take notes this morning. If it's not on paper, take mental notes. And here's why. Here's why you need this, okay? You need this because whether you live in a good neighborhood, a bad neighborhood, whether you've got a happy bank account or a sad bank account in the negative, whether you've got a lot of friends or you're lonely, whether you catch the coronavirus or not, you need to know what being blessed of God means and looks like and is. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, if you take this list that Jesus gives and you have it in your heart, the circumstances of life that fall heavy on you cannot crush you. The words that Jesus gives here are so profound. I know it's true of you because it's true of me and we are human beings, so this is common to us all. We are so tempted, are we not, to have our head down and shuffle our feet when things don't go our way. When the circumstances of life don't go as we hoped, when the blessings of life seem to dry up. But what Jesus is saying here is how to know you are blessed, blessed in His kingdom. He's giving us a picture really of Psalm 1, of a tree rooted by streams of water that even when there's drought, the leaves remain green and it bears fruit. Do you want to be the type of person that can bear fruit for God when the worst things happen to you? And conversely, when the best things happen to you, you don't get distracted by thinking, okay, life's good. You are fixed firmly on what Jesus Christ has said true blessedness is. If that's something you want today, I want to encourage you to pay attention to what Jesus says. So let's get into these. There's There's five that we didn't cover last Sunday. These five final Beatitudes that we're going to talk about are the five points of the sermon. And here they are, five points. Point number one. So this is talking about those that are blessed in God's kingdom, how they're going to live their days on this earth. Here it is, point number one. A specific kind of compassion. A specific kind of compassion. Point number two, a specific kind of holiness. A specific kind of holiness. Point number three, a specific kind of communication. A specific kind of communication. Point number four, a specific kind of suffering. A specific kind of suffering. And lastly, a specific kind of reproach. A specific kind of reproach. And it's worth mentioning 
what that word blessed means because it shows up in every verse that we're looking at today. So go ahead and quiz yourself. In your own mind right now, go ahead and give the definition that you have to work with of what blessedness means. Go ahead, in your mind, think. What did Jesus mean when he said blessed? Hopefully what's going off in your mind right now is something like this. Blessedness means not surface level happy, but a state of flourishing and thriving and being truly happy, truly prosperous, having a wholeness that is all anchored in the favor of God. It's a spiritual blessedness. Even if your physical body is wasting away, even if your material goods are being swept away in the winds of circumstance, even if your life seems to go well on the outside, that's not what blessedness means. Blessedness is favor with God that results in a flourishing, whole, and deeply joyful state for you spiritually. So, let's see what Jesus said. How could we be that way? Well, in verse 7, he gives us something very specific, very compact, and very short. Notice how clear Jesus is in verse 7. This is point number one, a specific kind of compassion. He says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You likely know what the word merciful means, but in case you're like some, at least I used to always think mercy is just a courtroom kind of thing. Somebody deserves intense, harsh punishment, and it's taken away. That's, that's mercy. Or a king in history, ancient history, some king pardons his subjects and he doesn't punish them. I've always thought that is my definition of mercy, and, and that's true, but it's a little bit short-sighted because mercy especially here when Jesus is speaking, it's more than just withholding the power to punish. Mercy is, yes, withholding the power to punish or harm, but it's also withholding the power of neglecting someone else. It's a positive attribute, a positive virtue that means this. It's the desire to relieve unpleasantness, relieve suffering from somebody that you have the means to relieve their suffering. That's mercy. So merciful, if we are mercy-filled, that's what merciful means, this means we have feelings of pity with a focus of showing compassion on those in serious need. That's what mercy is. That's what it means. Sometimes we get confused, the ideas between grace and mercy. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace looks at the whole of us, even as sinners, and gives us great things we don't deserve. Mercy doesn't just look at the whole of us as a sinful person. Mercy looks at us and gets even more gritty and down right at our level and wants to then relieve the consequences of sin. Take us out of a, a suffering situation. That's mercy. What's so sweet about mercy is that, as theologians would say, this is one of the communicable attributes of God. Maybe you've never heard that term. God has incommunicable attributes, meaning things that he has that we can never have. One of those would be, he knows all things. He is omniscient. We will never be omniscient. 
He's all-powerful. We will never be all-powerful. But there is an attribute of God that we get to share in, and that is mercy. The character of God, His mercy. So a doctrine that is infused in this beatitude is really that communicable attribute of God, mercy. And you could even say a doctrine of progressive sanctification. Again, this is something God works in us. I wonder if you remember what God said about Himself when He revealed Himself to Moses in the Old Testament. You remember when He he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock? Moses was covered up, and He didn't let him see His face. He passed by Moses, but only the back of him passed by. But the Lord proclaimed something. Do you remember what He said? This is from Exodus 34, 5-7. The Lord God... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? The very first attribute God said of himself was what? Mercy. The first one. This is that front-loaded attribute, not because God is more merciful than anything else about him, But because as sinful human beings, this is the attribute of God we desperately need if we are going to have any encounter with God and not be completely crushed. Mercy. This is why James, in James chapter 2, tells us that we should be those who speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy. We want to be richly merciful. Mercy filled towards others. We don't want to be like God in this way. God says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But we are not God in that sense. We are commanded to be merciful, really to all men. In this same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, A little bit later in chapter 5, Jesus talks about loving your enemies, forgiving those who are hurting you, forgiving those who have debts. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. These are all mercy-filled sayings that allow us not to pick and choose. I'll show mercy to whomever I want to show mercy to. Jesus says, no, you need to be mercy-filled. And if you are, you are blessed because you shall receive mercy. Not that you're coercing God, that if you treat people a certain way, He'll then treat you a certain way. But He's saying, you already know that you shall receive mercy. You're going to experience mercy on the final judgment in Christ. Display it now. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not having mercy. Do you remember what He said to them when they were tithing out of their spice rack? He said in Matthew 23, you tithe mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Mercy is what the great Samaritan does in that most famous story that Christ gives. Mercy, if you, if you want it to be in your local church and have an example, if you want to see what, what does mercy look like, I would have to put a spotlight on John and Sam Dykes. 
mercy. So think to yourself, is foster care and adoption an obligation? Something to to look better to your friends and family? Something to get a better tax return? No, it's something of mercy and compassion. And I'm so thankful for John and Sam because their mercy-filled actions towards others who are literally trapped in horrible situations, their compassionate heart to relieve their suffering and discomfort of those that they can help is a display of this beatitude. And I highlight them, not because they wanted to be highlighted, but I highlight them to say, if you were to go ask them, hey, is it, is it really blessedness when we make ourselves uncomfortable and we show mercy? Is there really blessedness there? They could tell you how much blessing is on the other side of showing mercy to someone. It's not that it's easy, but there is a flourishing, a blessedness, a spiritual blessedness that comes, and they could tell you that. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, are you a compassionate, mercy-filled person? Or are you impatient, hard-nosed with the fallen, the backslidden, the downtrodden, the trapped? Don't give up hope that if that's not your natural bent and personality that you'll never be merciful. God delights to, to change your heart. But ask yourself, Do I think I'm a merciful person, but others don't, and they just don't get me? Or can you ask yourself, am I merciful? And by God's grace, you can say yes. And you could go to ask others around you in your local church, and they would say, yeah, you are. If you're not a merciful person, I would encourage you, get around those who are mercy-filled and talk to them about how they became that way. What a great conversation that would be. But there's more than just showing mercy. There's something that is equally as as uncomfortable at times as it is, but also equally as blessedness as it is, filled with blessing as it is. That's, That's being a person of purity. You don't have to choose between, do I want to be a merciful person or a pure person? Jesus tells you to pursue both. This is the second point. This is verse 8. So point two, a specific kind of holiness. Jesus tells us in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The purity Jesus is talking about here is to be rid of lust and rid of idols, rid of greed. Have a heart that's rid of covetousness. In place of these, there is a pure and clean heart. So not just externally pure, but from the heart. So this idea of pure in heart means innocent and unsoiled and pure sincerity, pure virtue. Not that you are perfectly pure in your heart. Indwelling sin remains. But he's he's attacking really anyone who would think purity is just an external thing. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, didn't he, by saying, hey, you guys do a great job of cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside, it's filthy and it's dirty. Imagine if I told my wife, honey, 
I did a great job. I did all the dishes. Look how sparkly they are. And I tried to pridefully hold them up to show her. And it was because it was late at night and I was tired and I just kind of washed the outside of some of our cups. Would she drink out of that? No. Is God impressed when you've seemed to fooled everyone else about how clean you are and yet you come to worship and say, God, fill me with your spirit. I want to worship you. He sees all the dirt that you're unwilling to confess to him and be made clean. We're told in the scriptures in 1 John 3, 3, that those who hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. That's the way we're made clean. We hope in Christ. The doctrine at play here is, again, progressive sanctification and God's communicable attribute of holiness. He allows us to share increasingly in his holiness. But the doctrine of his omniscience also intersects with this beatitude because he knows everything. He knows all. He knows when your heart is not pure and yet everything on the outside looks like it's pretty pure. I'm urging you this morning, stop looking at what merely your own eyes can see and merely what the eyes of others can see. Concern yourself with what God can see about you. I'm reminded of the Pilgrim's Progress, a story from John Bunyan, one of the most famous Christian uh, fictional literature. I'm reminded of a moment when Christian is told to sweep up and clean up this dusty parlor. If you've read the book, you know about this. He's tasked with cleaning this up, and he sweeps around with the broom, and what happens? All this dust is kicked up. The more he sweeps, the more he tries to clean, it's as if he can't breathe, and he ends up choking on his own cleaning efforts, and he he wants to give up. But then he receives help. Water is sprinkled on the room. And that dust turns to mud, and, and not automatically, but now with his efforts that have been enabled by that water, he can get rid of the mud, and the dust doesn't overwhelm him and choke him. And Bunyan wrote that to display. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. The water of God's cleansing word applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit enables us then, not automatically, enables us. We have a responsibility to pursue sanctification enables us by his grace to make our hearts pure and clean what a god we serve that the things he commands of us he doesn't leave us to ourselves to make happen he enables us god wants you to be a blessed person and he helps you to be a blessed person so if there's any among you among us right now that you think I just keep struggling with this. I'm not going to be pure. Or you know what? I keep just being so greedy in this moment. I'm not going to be pure. This idol just keeps a stronghold on me. Don't believe the lie that you can't change and you can't grow. Jesus would not be telling us here, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, if he didn't think that this could really happen in a Christian's life. He knows it will happen in a Christian's life. He wants you to be able to see God. That's the promise here. If you're pure in heart, you shall see God. So there is a future fulfillment of this where we see God face to face, but there is an already component to this. I want to proclaim to you the positive truth that if you pursue purity, 
you will see more of God. You will see God in the works of history. You will see God in your present surroundings. When you look at nature, you will see God in the conversations you're having. You will see God clearly in the Scriptures when you get time with Him if you pursue purity of heart. This is why in Revelation 19.8, we're told that the bride, the church, the bridegroom is dressed in pure and fine linen. Right now, it's kind of hard because our clothing and our outward actions don't match up perfectly with the purity of our hearts, but there's coming a day when we're made pure. And we don't have to worry about, is the outside matching up with the inside? We'll be in fellowship with God. We'll see Him face to face. And even our very clothing will reflect our purity. I'm thankful that not just purity and not just mercy, but we have another way to pursue being blessed, and that's in the way we communicate with others. This is point three, being a peacemaker. Being peacemakers. This is verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is when you bring the gospel to bear on a situation in seeking peace. So bringing the gospel itself in evangelism or bringing implications of the gospel and bringing harmony to relationships that are at odds. The primary aim of peacemaking in the Bible is a gospel heralding or a, being a gospel teller. That's peacemaking. And we know that because when Jesus says be a peacemaker, he, he's drawing upon words that any of the Jews sitting under his teaching would have instantly known, like in Isaiah when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountains. They're, they're bringing good news of peace. They're publishing peace. They're publishing salvation. Being a peacemaker means you have a posture to resolve conflict between two who are not in fellowship. So primarily this is between God and men, but secondarily it can be with a family member or a spouse or a roommate. Consider that if you don't want to strive for peace with someone in your family or in your office, consider you are willingly choosing to forsake blessedness. You are putting your own mentality of what you think is best in a situation higher than what Jesus has said. Jesus just told you, blessed are the peacemakers. How often we are tempted to not pursue peace. And Jesus says there, blessed are the peacemakers, and he tells us why. They shall be called sons of God. That doesn't mean God adopts us all over again into his family and we experience salvation again. Being sons of God simply means you now have the family resemblance. If I see one of the bachelor kids walking around, there's times when they go out to the car and they walk past my office on a Sunday and they'll be talking, and I think it's Jeff, and I'll actually look up. They bear the resemblance of their father, not just in how they walk, but even in how they talk, what they speak, what they communicate. God is saying, if you can be a peacemaker, you get to have family resemblance of a special kind. Don't you want to reflect God to those around you? Then be a peacemaker. 
To be a peacemaker means you must deliver yourself, with God's help, from self-interest and self-concern. If you're thinking only of yourself, even constantly shielding yourself, it's going to make it hard for you to even have a neutral view or have a view of God's glory and help bring peace. But I'm so thankful we have so many peacemakers in this church. Be careful, though. Peacemaking, when Satan sees that happening, you know what he likes to do? He likes to get alongside of a peacemaker and encourage them to gossip. Encourage them to meddle in things that are not their business. Encourage them to overstep what they think they can do to bring peace. So be careful. Pursue being a peacemaker, but also be careful in the ways that Satan would hate the fact that you're a peacemaker. I love the fact that in Philippians 4, Paul tells two women, Iodia and Syntyche, ladies, you all need to agree in the Lord. He's pursuing being a peacemaker. And he goes on to talk about what they should think about, whatever is true and lovely and good and right. He talks about the peace of God which can guard our hearts and fill our hearts. So Philippians 4 is a wonderful place to go if you want to cultivate being a peacemaker. Philippians chapter 4. I would ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Do you have a posture of peacemaking? I'm not asking if you desire peace and you like it when there's no conflict. I'm not even asking if you like the person that you think you need to help bring peace to. I'm asking, do you believe Jesus' words here that it's blessed to be a peacemaker? I hope that you do. It changes our communication strategy. Consider memorizing verses in Philippians 4, or even James 4, when he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war. Be a peacemaker. Memorize passages of Scripture that deal with resolving conflict. James is a great book to go to. He says in chapter 3, a harvest of peace is gleaned because it's been sown in peace. If you want peace, something has to be sown. Something has to be worked at. Peace doesn't happen automatically. Peace is hard, but it's worth it. This is why I love the gospel. Jesus Christ came to show us par excellence what a peacemaker is. If you think of yourself as an okay person, I have news for you. We have all rebelled against God. In His love, He created us. He set His love on us. He gave us good gifts. He provided us with everything we need. And we turned our back on Him and rebelled against Him. And as rebels, as those who even rebel and smile as we do, and others rebel and frown as they do, no matter what form of rebellion we take to pursue our own path instead of God's, God did not leave us in a state of enmity. He provided His Son Christ to be a peacemaker, to be a mediator between God and men. This is why Jesus came to die. And this is why He rose again. To show that He's victorious over death and to proclaim peace 
to all those who would turn and trust and repent, putting their faith in Him. So I'm urging you this morning, if you're a guest, a visitor, if you're a son or daughter of a member and you're here, even if you are a church member, ask yourself, do I know the peace of God being made right between God and myself because of what Christ has done? Do you know that peace this morning? If you don't, what are you waiting for? Jesus provided peace between you and God. I urge you this morning, put your faith in Christ. Don't rely on your parents' faith. Don't rely on the faith of your friends. And don't deceive yourself that you have faith in God if these beatitudes are not present in your life. If you are not a peacemaker, if that doesn't seem appealing to your taste buds, your spiritual taste buds, watch out that you might be going on a path of deception. And it might even be so destructive that you don't even know God. Take seriously Jesus' words to pursue peace. Well, there's two final words Jesus gives, and these might even be the most difficult to hear. This is point four and point five. Point number four, a specific kind of suffering. This is verse 10. And point number five, a specific kind of reproach. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know what persecution means? Persecution means when someone or some group systematically oppresses or harasses a person or a group and puts into motion harm, literally hunting them down. Persecution occurs three times in these last two verses. But even persecution, even reviling, can't stop the blessedness of God of unfolding in a person's life. This is what's so sweet about being blessed in God's kingdom. It is unstoppable. Have you thought about this fact? Nothing can stop you from experiencing the blessedness of God's kingdom except unbelief. That's it. What's happening in your jobs, in your workplace, or your family? What's happening even in your local church? Nothing can stop you from being blessed of God except your own unbelief. I pray that you would believe God's word so that even when reviling happens, you're okay. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, we can be comforted with the thought that when we are persecuted, Christ takes notice of that because it's as if someone is persecuting himself. The doctrine at play here is our union with Christ. This is why persecution matters in God's eyes. This is why we are persecuted, because of our union with Christ. So whether it's suffering or mistreatment, it's not merely because we're rude to other people and we're mistreated, or we act out of character and out of place. The suffering here, did you notice why the persecution comes? Look in verse 10 and 11. Why does the persecution and the reviling come upon a Christian? Verse 10 tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 11, we're told, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And here's the key words, on my account. Of course you can be reviled for acting foolish 
and making bad choices, jumping into some political fight that you don't need to. Of course you can encounter harsh suffering and verbal slander and attack that way, but Jesus is saying even the sweetest among us. There are some women in this church that are the sweetest, just most godly, precious, kind, gentle ladies I've ever been around. And I, wanna, I don't want to scare you. You are a target for verbal slander if you're united to Christ. So this doesn't matter if you have thick skin, you think you can take insults. It doesn't matter your own self-resolve if you can withstand insult. What matters is if you believe the words of Jesus here. Blessed are you when that occurs in your life. Because your reward is great in heaven. Jesus told us we would be sheep sent out among wolves. In 2 Corinthians, we're told we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. If you want to add some really spiritual fiber to your diet to get ready for suffering, I would say read the book of 1 Peter. It's so encouraging how to withstand what Jesus is talking about here. But in all of these words, we, we want to be those like Moses, as spoken in Hebrews 11.24. Moses knew what reproach was like. It says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. It's what allowed him to not give in to the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm so thankful Jesus here tells us what blessedness is. In closing, I simply want to recap by saying all of these beatitudes, all of these different angles upon the life of a Christian, they all require humility. Humility is kind of a golden thread that weaves these all together. And our final thought today would simply be this. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Try to spend some time today or this week humbly praying these beatitudes deeper into your life. These aren't held out for us because if you, if you start doing them, you'll earn God's favor. That's not what it is. These are given because at the beginning of a kingdom manifesto, Jesus is saying, here's what the people of God look like. And he doesn't talk about their descent from Abraham or their ethnic identity or their outward religious practices. He talks about this inward character, this way of living that identifies them with God's kingdom. So I'm encouraging you, cultivate these in your life for greater assurance that you're in God's kingdom for a greater manifestation to others of what the kingdom looks like, for greater blessedness. I know it's counterintuitive. I pray that you will look around at others and see the blessed brothers and sisters in this local church. And I pray that when you look in the mirror, you see blessedness. You see Christ. Is that true of you? I hope so. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for challenging us as much as you encourage us with what blessedness looks like. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we, we don't prefer what you say blessedness is. Lord, we acknowledge none of us want physical harm and want suffering and slander. 
But if that is going to be inevitable, help us to have a heart that would say, so be it, Lord, if that is in your will for us. Lord, I pray that you would take those that are hurting and discouraged in our midst, even those that are apathetic, and give them a bright hope that the blessedness they seek and long for is not dependent upon their own physical body or their circumstances. It's dependent upon your Holy Spirit working in us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would make us love these Beatitudes and pursue them. Please do that in us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.